Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. Good evening. Um, I'm Peter Buckland, and I am pinch hitting for Mark Christian tonight. Mark is in an airplane going to Japan right now. Yeah, I know. We can all be praying for him as we open up. And I will be here tonight and next week um, to do the lessons for you. Um, And if you would be praying for Mark, he is going to go visit one of our missionaries that's there with Matt Gilchrist, our new uh, missional impact minister. And they'll be back on Wednesday night next week. So it's kind of there and back and making some assessments, being able to bring some encouragement to them in Osaka, one of the most expensive places in Japan. So um, would you um, join me in a word of prayer as we pray for them and our evening tonight, and then we'll get started. Lord, we thank you so much for your goodness and your grace. We thank you that you have saved us. You have taken us from darkness and brought us into light. Tonight, Lord, as we take a look at the resurrection and we take a look at how important this truth is to us, we ask that you would teach us what it means to live resurrected lives. Not only um, about how important it is to know the eyewitness accounts and to see the testimony, but to be the living testimony of what it means to die to self and to live for you, to die to sin and to be alive for righteousness, and that we as a community would be a living testimony of that light and that righteousness and that holiness. Lord, we pray for Mark and Matt as they travel to Japan and ask that you would give them travel mercies and good rest and health and um, an ability to adjust to the time difference. But more than that, Lord, we pray for Osaka and we pray for the ministry that is there when there are so few, less than 1% of the population of Japan is Christian and that this church has an outpost of light there that other churches have joined in on. And we pray, Lord, that Mark and Matt would bring encouragement and support and you would help for them to discern what other kinds of ways could we be supportive as a congregation to the work in Japan. Lord, we are so grateful that we can band together at Christ Church of Orinoco and we are mindful that you have blessed us in a rich way. And so we pause to say thank you. We pause to say thank you for the friends that are in this room, uh, the relationships that are even forming as a result of this class and ask that you would teach us tonight what it means to live a resurrected life. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would, uh, take a minute to greet those around you. I know Mark did that last time. I'll just say hi to some people if you haven't yet, and um, I'll give you a couple minutes to do that.
As we get started tonight, I'd like to deviate a little bit and give you some devotional thoughts about the centrality of the resurrection and why that's so important to us. So if you happen to have your Bibles with you, I'd like to take you to some passages that Mark did not put down by way of having you begin to look at this more devotionally tonight. My goal is for you to ask the question, how can I live a resurrected life? How does the experience of Jesus give me courage and strength and ability to be able to live a life for him when the world around me might not be doing that? And so I want to take you to four passages of scripture tonight by way of devotion so that you could see some of the biblical writer's view of why this is so incredibly important. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses starting in verse 3, Um, is the first section that I want to take you to. So I'm going to start in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. This is the resurrection chapter. And if you've been a Christian for a very long time, you probably will go to this chapter on Easter or for encouragement about living a resurrected life. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance. Now, here you're looking at what Paul says is the central truth, the most important thing that you could ever tell somebody else about our faith is coming up next in his next few words. He says this, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the 12. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. The first thing that I want for you to see is that the resurrection is the centerpiece of our faith. Paul says, without it, you and I really don't have any leg to stand on. This is the authority and the power that Jesus demonstrates that he is God and that he can make a difference within our lives. And what I want for you to think about is this. If God can raise Jesus from the dead, is he capable of changing our lives? And I want you to think about that because you and I, can get stuck in old behavior, we can get stuck in our thinking, and we, we can become very discouraged. Some of what we deal with is stubborn inside of us, isn't it? I mean, it might be a part of our personality, it might be a part of our history, it might be given to us even as early as childhood, and we grapple with it over and over again. But here's what I want to take you to, is that if this is the most important piece, not only are you and I going to be resurrected, which is what the Bible teaches, but you get to die and be born again, over and over again, so to speak, throughout your life. And that's what I want to turn to next, is the encouragement of scripture that indicates that since Jesus died and was actually raised from the dead, God has the power to change you from the inside out. And that's the devotional that I want you to think about. And what does God need to change in you? That's what I want for you to think about tonight as we go through this. So look at the next passage in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. A very familiar passage that Paul makes as a central piece of his own life. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. 
This is in a section about believing in Jesus, and he says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. What Paul is saying is this, I have true life. When I go through this death to life process, so today, even tonight, is there something you need to turn away from? Is there something that you need to say, you know, Lord, this just kind of creeps up on me, or this is something that I have to deal with, that I need to turn to you so that you can give me life, the real life that you want for me to have. And Paul said, I live this way. I crucify myself. I put to death things that are dangerous and things that God has said are sinful, and even some of my old, ha- old habits, that I would pick up the life that Christ would have for me. Mark chapter 8, 34 through 39, is another passage that talks about this. Jesus' own words, Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 34. This is a familiar passage about what does it profit for you to gain the whole world and get it all wrong. So Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 34, Jesus comes along and he's talking about the cost of discipleship. Mark chapter 8, 34. Oh, I'm in Matthew, sorry. Mark chapter 8, 34. There we go. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and he said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Your daily experience is to be a resurrection experience. That's the cool thing. Your daily experience is to be watching God do something amazing in you that you otherwise think that he can't do. And so Jesus is saying, look, you need to understand that I've come that you would have life abundantly. And he says that the way that he wants for us to think about that is that we would die to ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for men to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with his holy angels. What Jesus is saying is that there's a normal experience, and I want to take you to that for just a moment. This amazing experience of Jesus paying for our sins, being tormented and tortured and killed and put in the ground and raised again, is to be, in a symbolic way, a metaphorical way, our own experience. That every day, I'm supposed to be mindful that God calls me, if I could say this, to maybe even live beyond what I think that I can. To ask him to come into my life and to help me to do what I cannot do. Every single day, we are reminded that God calls us to a life that is so amazing that I can't do it on my own. And so one of the things I'd like for you to think about devotionally is, Lord, would you please give to me the eyes to see the ears to hear what you need for me to do that I can live beyond what I think that I can live. So let me just talk to the ladies here for just a moment. I get to do a lot of parenting around the country. And one of the things that ladies tend to struggle with is their own way that they relate to their children. I don't know that there's any ladies in here that ever struggle with yelling at their kids or feeling really frustrated or maybe even feeling like a failure that they weren't perfect. Here's what I want you to know, is that God recognizes that that's a normal part of what happens to women, moms, who love their kids in a fallen world. Wouldn't it be amazing if there would be some way that during the day, when you're doing the best that you can, you ask the Lord, take me where I cannot go. Help me to love my kids beyond what I'm normally able to, and help me to be able to say the words the way that I want to say them. Wouldn't that be amazing? 
But every day we have to pray for that because God knows that it's kind of like manna. It's like every day I need more help than what I ask for. The power of the resurrection is that God is ready to give us what we need in that moment. And so one of the things that I think about ladies and moms, I mean, women are amazing, right? I mean, crown jewels of creation, complicated, yes. Amazing, yes. But it's really hard sometimes for them to figure out what to do and how to do it the very best way. And God knows that. And he says, I'll I'll come alongside of you and I'll help you to deal with that. Now, there's something about men in our relationships is we tend to be kind of passive and we don't step in and do the right kinds of things. So for gentlemen in here, what I want to encourage you to do is to live beyond what you normally do and either open up your mouth or open up your text or open up your email and tell somebody what you appreciate about them. Even in your own family. Valentine's Day is coming up, this is a hint. Tell somebody what you appreciate about them before they would require that. To live beyond, to to actually notice something and encourage people. Because here's what's really interesting. Men give value when they interact with people in relationships differently than women do. Men reach for more power and women tend to help people who are lower than them and need help. And so the resurrection lifestyle says this to us. Look, I want you to live beyond. I want you to be like Jesus, men. And Jesus emptied himself and he reached down. And he gave us value and he gave us ability by just noticing and spending time with people who needed him. So gentlemen, who needs you? Who needs you for a listening ear? Who needs you for a word of encouragement in or out of your family? And you might think, oh, that's not me. You're right, it isn't you. It is not you, but it needs to be you. It's the new you. It's the resurrected you. It's the you that gives value because Jesus will give you the power and the help to step out of yourself. Here's here's what I think. When you look at the scripture and you see that the Bible says that you need to do something, I want you to remember the resurrection. And I want you to remember that because this amazing event occurred, and there's eyewitnesses accounts that we're gonna take a look at, there is something that can grow in you that's brand new that God can do for you, which is really pretty cool. Romans chapter six talks about that. So flip on over, this is our last one before we jump into the outline. Romans chapter six. This is tied to the symbolism of immersion baptism. All the early Christians practiced immersion baptism and it was tied to the idea of death, burial, and resurrection, which everyone could see that type in it. And what Jesus is saying to you is, you're gonna do this thing and it's gonna remind you of what actually happened to me. And because I was resurrected, you're gonna be able to have an amazing life too. It's kind of like acting it out. When my daughter, Audrey, wanted to be baptized, she was kind of young, she was a child, and I said, well, can you kind of explain it to me? And she said, well, Daddy, it's like when you go down into the water, it's like Jesus dying and going down into the grave. And when you get laid down, it's like Jesus was dead. And then when you lift somebody up, it's like Jesus getting resurrected, and we get to have a new life in Jesus. Straight out of Romans chapter six. Why did we get that? Because we forget. We forget the power that we have. And what God is saying is every time somebody is immersed into Christ, remember the power. Remember the Christ. Remember your own story and renew your faith because the power is electrifying and in the air. 
If you've been here on any of the Sundays where we've had multiple baptisms, there's something like electricity that happens in the air. And you can sense it, that there's something really incredible. Well, look at this in Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Verse 1. Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may have a new life. Just stop right there. I, I asked a really wise lady one time about baptism. I was a teenager and I said, why would God have us do something like that? She was actually an Indian woman in Arizona. And so she pulled out that Indian wisdom that we often think that Native Americans have. And she actually had it. And she said to me, Peter, it's so that you would remember. It's so that you wouldn't forget. It's so that you could go back to that time and that place when you get really, really frustrated with yourself. That time and that place where you might actually feel like you were a failure and your life isn't working very well. You can go back to that time and you can say, in this moment, I believed. And in this moment, God worked and he can work again can work again. God never does anything on accident. The resurrection is to be a part of our experience so that we would be able to move forward. And then he goes on to say this, if we have been united with him, verse five, like this in his death, we will certainly be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we would no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Verse 9, for we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. It's amazing. It's amazing. What you're going to be looking at tonight on this little sheet of paper is the engine of your faith. It is what God brings you back to over and over again. I didn't, didn't even bring up communion, the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Every Sunday, we as a body have decided we want to remember the engine of our faith, the opportunity for forgiveness, the opportunity to start all over again and renew the new person. So tonight, if you have business to do with God, before you put your head down on your pillow, be Christian and say, God, Renew me and change me and keep working on me and help me to claim and learn what this new life is like. As Jesus died and was resurrected, keep resurrecting me to the new life. Keep helping me to grow, putting off the old and bringing on the new. You're, in, you're staring at it tonight. You're looking at the guts of it tonight. The fact that there were eyewitness accounts and the fact that the early Christians staked their lives on this. And you and I need to keep going back because it is too easy to forget. Too easy to forget. So let's take a look at what has been prepared for us on the death and the post-life of Christ and his church. Lesson number five. You'll notice that Jesus' last days on the earth are all listed out for you so that you could look at this devotionally. And one of the things that I want to encourage you to do, Easter is coming up pretty soon, is it would be really good for you at some point to take a look at this and try to get into the emotions of the moment. So often in 
what I like to call conservative Christianity, of which most of us have all grown up in, um, it becomes too heady. And we begin to lose the emotional context, that is, the gratitude of the pressure that Jesus was under for us, or the fact that he was able to kind of move in and out of a crowd that really was very hostile to him, and we need to have a sense of that hostility, because that hostility is a representative of my sinfulness toward him, that I would be grateful that he took that hostility in my place. And when he was on the cross and people were deriding him and he knew that that was coming, he not only took my sins, but he took my shame that I could stand before him pure and holy. And all of that is starting to move right now in all of these accounts. So when you go back through these accounts, go back through these accounts and put yourself in that crowd as an ignorant person. Put yourself there and say, that could have been me, and maybe that has been me in my own attitude with Christ. Because you and I find strength to obey when we are grateful for what we have been saved from. And we have no strength when we are not grateful. And so when you look at a list like this that that has been put together, um, take a look and find yourself within the story and see how Christ really redeems you as well. Underneath this, Mark wrote, each of the Gospels gives a detailed account of Jesus' last day on earth, which according to the Jewish reckoning began at sundown, but not each Gospel account includes every feature of that final fateful day. Just let me take you back to something Mark has shared with us over and over again, is the Gospel writers had different reasons for emphasizing the different um, elements within their own record. And if you take all of them together, this will be the most complete that we can have. But I would say to you that if somebody says, well, they're different, they were different on purpose. They were different to accomplish a particular task. And so when you're looking at this, and we're going through Mark, and Mark is like Speedy Gonzalez all the way through, and almost half of John is the last week of Jesus. John is kind of like a shower that hovers on over and doesn't move and just talks about this over and over and over again, and John is going somewhere. Remember that the writers are really trying to get a point across, and to take the whole account together is going to give it its full body devotionally for you. Um, the whole idea of crucifixion, as you take a look at this, is that crucifixion was designed to bring the maximum amount of agony possible without killing somebody. Just let that sink in for you for a moment. The maximum amount of agony possible without killing somebody. And you can read this, you know, coming from the Persians and on. In fact, Roman citizens weren't allowed to have this level of excruciating pain. But this was a deterrent. This was a political deterrent as well as a way for people to just kind of be complicit with whatever Rome wanted to do. And here's what I want you to remember. Jesus was born specifically to go through that for you. He was born in that time and that place with that form of execution that God determined there was enough, if I could say it this way, enough agony to die that way. Doesn't that sound odd? There was enough agony to die that way that you and I could be saved. That just really gets me. I can't watch some of the crucifixion things because it just gets me. And sometimes it's hard for me to watch the news in the way that we treat each other, but, but hear this well. That was to be for us. That is the wrath of God that we escape. And so when you look at these accounts from a Christian standpoint and you see all of this bloodiness and nastiness and I look at that and go, why did that have to happen? God has said that this will satisfy 
the punishment. That sin requires separation and death and punishment. And I don't understand all of that because I live in this world that I want the best deal possible. But Jesus had to die as agonizing of a death as possible so you and I could be children of God. And that ought to bring us to the point where we want to give up the kinds of things that we hold on to in the old life. That's motivation. That he took that place for us. So when you look at this nailed to a cross and these crucifixion events that you're going to be taking a look at, I want you to see that these just follow um, this whole series of agony. There is enough agony. And the one thing that Marcus said, I want to just bring this to you, is that not only is there agony, but there's insult. Not only is there agony, but there's insult. That the creator of the universe, and, and here's, here's what I like to think about with this. Some of the theologians believe that Jesus was crucified about six inches above the ground, completely naked. So that people could come up to him almost face to face and deride him. Now we often think of the big tall cross where Jesus is up high. And there is the possibility that he was actually crucified down low. And as a counselor, I like that. Because here is the truth in that closeness. Not only did Jesus pay for our sins, but he took away our shame because he was so shamed. And you and I are shamed to not be obedient and we are shamed to not accept the life because we think God cannot forgive us. And so when these people are coming up to Jesus and they're deriding him and he was probably naked, they also took a sponge, which if you've been around the church long enough, you've heard Mark say this, they took, they took a sponge, which is a sponge which you wipe yourself after you go to the bathroom and you dip it in the, the vinegar water and you give it to Jesus as a means to shame him further. As though that wasn't enough. Now we're gonna do this. And after that he said, it is finished, it is enough. So what I want for you to do is when you look at this in these accounts that we're gonna look at is I want you to go there emotionally. And I don't want this to be an academic experience for you. I want you to look at this and see um, how much God loves you that these events would go on and that the significance of the cross um, would be a part of your own devotional experience. Um, look at what is the significance of Jesus' death on the cross. You can look through the events at Calvary. The Bible makes it clear that Jesus' death on the cross was always an essential element. For Jesus, his disciples bef um, informed his disciples beforehand what would happen. And rather than call on the Father for angelic armies, Jesus chose to let himself be executed. Just kind of circle or underline that. Jesus chose, Jesus chose, Jesus chose. <laughs> Gentlemen, I want to take you somewhere. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. It is the same kind of idea. Ephesians 5, 25. Just write it down. It's in the passage about husbands and wives. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's what the way that the English version talks about it. Let me tell you what the Greek says. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ gave himself up to be executed. Crucifixion language in marriage. Because God knows that a man is going to want to do whatever a man wants to do. Now, don't hit each other, but you know that this is true. And so he uses execution language to say, you're going to lay down, like Jesus chose to lay down his life. You are going to choose to lay down different aspects about who you are, that you could pick up the lives of other people, the way that Jesus does that. Marriage, every single day, 
is a death, burial, and resurrection experience for men. In the language of marriage. Isn't that interesting? Because we live in a fallen world where we need to be reminded to not be selfish. To not be selfish. And for ladies, if we just go up a little bit, where it talks about submission, it, it says, ladies, just to Christ... Uh, to your husbands as to Christ. Submit to your husbands as to Christ as, as you would submit to Christ. Well, that's like Jesus submitting to the Father. You have, again, crucifixion language. This is the center of everything because it's so hard to live with another person sometimes. Can I get an amen? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And what Jesus says, he comes along, he says, I don't want you to forget that there is power. There is power in laying down your life and picking up what I want. Wouldn't that be amazing if we could get a hold of that power for men and women? Just in marriage itself, it's a part of that. And so Jesus chose to let himself be executed. That becomes a standard for us. I choose. I choose. I choose to serve. I choose to be around people and treat them well who otherwise would not treat me well. I choose. That's really tough. You need the work of the Holy Spirit, which is coming up in the second part of this that I want to show you the verse that is really the coolest verse, I think, about transformation. Notice this. He was pierced for our transgressions, Isaiah 53, 4 through 6. Writing 700 years before Jesus was born, God announced through the prophet Isaiah that Jesus would be paying this price. Now, what's really cool is that when, this, when 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is talking about according to the scriptures, there is passage after passage after passage after passage that God prophesied that Jesus would die. And he would die in a particular way. And he would, be, he would be the son of God. And so Isaiah 55, if you have not looked through that, that would be a great passage as you get ready for Easter to take a look at that again and say, Lord, I so much appreciate that you yourself um, put yourself in this position that I would have life, that I would have life, so that I could then, in turn, give life to other people. So Isaiah 53 um, talks about your sins. He, sh- he took our infirmities, carried our sorrows, stricken by God, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, each to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That word iniquity... In the Hebrew, I'm a little Hebrew geek. That word iniquity is horrible behaviors that we have done. It is one of the worst words for sin. Iniquity. So you just might want to note that Isaiah picked through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit a word that everybody would know was the bad stuff. This wasn't just like a little mistake. This word iniquity is, is adultery. It is murder. It is fornication. It, it is molestation. It is, it is the horrible stuff. This word right here is the word that is used to capture all of that, which means this, if I could just tell you this. No matter what you have done, it's in that word. No matter what you have done, it is in that word. That is why that word was picked, which means that when Christ died on the cross and you accept his sacrificial death for you, that is removed from you. That's what that means. That's why that word is there. It is there so you and I would understand that I can give you forgiveness sometimes easier than I can give me forgiveness. And this is looking at you going, don't, don't forget your own story. Don't forget that you would be in the crowd. Don't forget what you have done. And you need to remember that the cross of Christ is so full of iniquity and Jesus paid for everybody's price that you are forgiven 
and you get to have a new life. It's just such a great deal. I can hardly believe that it's true. It's so incredible. That's what that word is. That nasty word. He goes on, says Christ died for us, Romans chapter 5, 8 and 9. Um, this is that Christ died for all of us since we have been justified by his blood how much more will we be saved from the wrath through him now one of the things that I want you to know that we grapple with here at Christ Church of Ornogo I want to bring you in on this I'm, I'm an elder here at Christ Church if I didn't wear my tag if, if you're not familiar with that Jesus paid the penalty so we don't have to And so one of the things that I want for you to think about is God beat up Jesus so we don't have to beat up each other. Let's think about that for a moment. When we get crossways in the world or we want to have an issue with a brother or a sister, one of the things that this looks at is Jesus took on that penalty and our first choice is the ministry of reconciliation in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 17 through 20. He has given us the ministry of reconciliation, 1 Corinthians 5, 17 through 20. That's our first ministry. The first ministry is not how bad did you treat somebody. The first ministry is can you be reconciled? That's the first question. Not do you get a pound of flesh. Not does somebody get kicked out of the church. Not does, should somebody be punished. The first thing is Will you respond to the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus and say, I am sorry, and I will be reconciled, and then we will deal with my behavior? The first question is, can you be reconciled? Isn't that amazing? Not how badly should you be punished. That's totally backwards from the world, don't you think? It's totally backwards. We grapple with that at our church. I think it's one of the reasons that so many people come here is because we really try to say the first question is not how bad are you? We already know that. We're pretty bad. The first question is not, did you make mistakes this week? Okay, okay, I did. I just lost track of how many there are. The question is, when you walk in here to worship God, are you willing, brothers and sisters, to lay your heart down and be reconciled to God? That's the question. That's what the resurrection, that's what the cross asks you. Will you come there and will you be healed? And so when you come to church on Sunday, maybe you should stop at the door and say, Lord, I'm coming in here that I would be reconciled to you and to my brothers and sisters for any offense that I have done to my family as best as is possible. I want to be reconciled. Even if you're right, the issue is not if you're right, but can you be reconciled. Jesus was right. And he died on the cross and he handed out to you and said, don't you want a relationship? And he was right and we were wrong. That's what he's asking. He died for us that we can answer that question, yes, I want a relationship with you. This is why we have to have power because I'm not capable of doing this on my own. I don't know if you are. Sometimes I just want a little flesh, don't you? A little pound of flesh here and there would be kind of nice. And I need to remember that the first question is not, am I right? The first question is, can there be reconciliation? That's interesting. That's what the cross does for us as we look at this. He goes on and he says, God made him sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21. Paul explained further when writing a second letter to the churches in Corinth, at the cross, an amazing transaction took place. Now, this is what's really amazing about the word reconciliation. Um, Jesus took our sins on himself. His death took the penalty of our sins. Let me get this on. Come on. Thank you. 
the sins that, let me pull this over. I can't read it when it's really super small. I apologize. There we go. The sins that um, we deserved. God then credited the righteousness of Jesus to us. With sin paid for, there was no longer a barrier between human beings and God. Here's the, the word reconciliation carries with it exchange. Exchange. I mean, he didn't put that in here, but that's what the word actually means in the Greek, is an exchange. So here's the deal. God says, I am going to create agony upon Jesus. So much agony that there never needs to be any agony on any other person ever again in separation from me. I I don't know how much agony that was. And when somebody believes in Jesus and they come to him and they say, there is no way for me to be holy and righteous on my own. There is no way that I can do this. And in faith, they approach Jesus. I will exchange their unrighteousness with the righteousness of the one hanging on the cross. That's the exchange that happens. And I say, Lord... I am so grateful for this and I can't do this on my own and I need you to make me into a new person and God says, deal done. And the righteousness of Jesus is given to us and the friendship of God is ours. That is the word reconciliation is exchange. So brothers and sisters, let me give you something real hard. Somebody comes to you that is, who has offended you and says, I am sorry. What they're asking is, Will you please take the crud that I have done to you and will you exchange it with peace? We exchange it with peace. And if, and hopefully we are able, we understand the great lengths that Jesus did that for us. This is the basis for it. We can say yes. Now we might not have the same relationship. I'm not saying that. But we could have peace. No more fighting. No more war. But we could have peace. That's reconciliation. And that's what's going on here is that Jesus became our sin in some incredible, amazing way that you and I would live, which is really cool. I want you to think about that and and focus on that and say, Lord, make me a reconciler. Make it so that I can hand peace back to people. Make it so I can hand friendship back to people that are struggling with that because you will then be this amazing magnet of God's grace because it is humanly impossible to do that on a regular basis. Can I get an amen? There's no way. I can't do it. I don't know if you can. I can do it better on some days than others. But God is ready to work with us to accomplish that end. Um, Beyond the grave, Jesus was buried late on Friday in the garden tomb of Joseph of Arimathea and um, he remained there until um, all Saturday till early Sunday by normal Jewish reckoning the third day Jesus rose from the dead and so you can see the appearances of all of these now here's what's really cool in the time period by which the Bible is written this was as good as YouTube and CNN and Fox News um, and all of those people because these people could be interviewed and um, eyewitness testimony was the foundation of the legal system two witnesses and that's it And so what you've got here is this ability that people have to move forward and be able to accept that Jesus was raised from the dead. So you're looking at the very heartbeat of um, what the early Christians would say, this is our authentication. These are people who saw Jesus alive and well. And this becomes the foundation then for the church because these people are um, giving that kind of testimony um, and moving forward. 
um, with all of that. Okay, let me look at this. Did I give you, am I missing any blanks? Okay. All right. Let's look at um, the Acts of the Apostles. I have like 25 minutes or so. Now, here's what I want to take you to, is the energy of the Holy Spirit. And there's a bunch of blanks on here that I want to give to you. But let me take you to Romans chapter 8, right? Romans chapter 8, 12 and 13. Romans chapter 8, 12 and 13. Everything that I'm talking to you about tonight is possible because God lives in you himself through the person of the Holy Spirit. And Romans chapter 8, verses um, 12 and 13 says that we have an obligation to no longer live according to the old man, the flesh. Because if we live according to the flesh, we will die. But if by the power of the Holy Spirit we are putting to death the, and the actual Greek is despicable deeds, the iniquity of the body, not, not the misdeeds as the New International says it, but the horrible stuff. If by the power of the Holy Spirit we are putting to death the, the despicable deeds of the body, we will live. And that, brothers and sisters, is what exploded in the book of Acts. The ability to live an upside-down life, the ability to face persecution and stare it in the face and say, I will not yield. I believe in Jesus Christ because there's something so amazing inside of me that I cannot explain any other way, that I can see his handprints all over me, and I know that this is true, that emboldened the church and it exploded because it was the only place on the planet where you could have that experience. Now you know the difference between a growing church and a not growing church. You know the difference between people who are able to find a way to live within that power and people who seem to be stuck in their own bitterness and resentment and their own pickle juice, so to speak, where they're just miserable all the time, where they're kind of not able to move forward. In Romans chapter 8, verses 12 and 13, this is the engine of your transformation of which the whole gospel says you can have. So when you're looking at Acts, you're now looking at the power of the Holy Spirit coming into regular people like you and me and doing extraordinary things. Let me tell you a story. Um, I had a mentor years and years ago when I was in college. His name was Dr. Charles Cook. And he was working at a church that hired him because they wanted to grow. And he um, said, okay, I will come, I will move. They um, had about 180 people, lived, um, moved to Arizona. And he began teaching the book of Acts. And let me tell you something about the book of Acts. The book of Acts is super dangerous for us. Super dangerous. Because the book of Acts can still happen today. Super dangerous. And so he decided that as the minister, um, he would take their eldership and he would give them a 10-minute little vignette out of the book of Acts and not say anything about it at all. Say zero, nothing, nothing about it at all. Because he didn't want to manipulate them or make them feel bad or make promises that you know, he couldn't keep. And so for two years, he read through the book of Acts with them and gave them an example of the book of Acts to this group of leaders who said they wanted to grow. At the end of that two years, one of the elders said to him afterwards, Charles, do you think that that could happen here? And he said, oh yes, I do. And that elder said, then let's make it happen. And that little conversation took that 180 member church and created a 6,000 member church today. There's something incredible. Let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Cook also. He did this other thing that was just amazing to me. He would disciple anybody 
crazy. Anyone that wanted to study the Bible, he would study it. And so there was a friend of his that grew up in a denominational church down the road. Um, they didn't practice adult um, immersion as baptism. And so he just kind of worked with this guy all the time. And, and he said, uh, this man finally said, you know, I, I really believe that I, I want to be baptized in the New Testament way. And, you know, we all know that that's something that people really struggle with at times. And he said, okay. And so he baptized him with a little private ceremony. And he looked at him and he said, now this is not for church membership. What I'm asking you is, do you want to fellowship with us or what do you want to do? And this is what he said. He said, I want to go back to my church and I want to teach them what I've learned. And he said, okay. And he said, but I still want to meet you every week. And so this man went back to his denominational church and taught them, taught the church what he was learning. Eight months later, the church erected a swimming pool out on the front lawn and they baptized 80% of their adult members. Let me tell you something about the power of God. This is something we believe in here. We believe that Acts is real. We believe that God disciples people. We believe that God convicts people. And we believe that you have to follow what he wants you to do because he's going to let you do something impossible. He's going to let you do something impossible crazy. Like go back to a church and baptize 80% of the adults. They never left the church. They just changed everything. That's just incredible to me. That's Acts. And when we crack this thing open tonight, just a little bit, I want you to see this is just dripping with the power of the Holy Spirit because now the Holy Spirit lives in you to empower you. And what Romans says is ask him to do for you what you cannot do and the courage to take the first step. That's what Romans 8 is all about. The courage to take the first step. Put to death. The, the iniquities of your body, the flesh, by the power of the Holy Spirit, one step at a time. Sometimes we get the steps wrong. That's why we need each other. But now you're looking at the engine of the person of the Holy Spirit giving you the power that you need. And so if I were to give you a devotional thought and a pill to leave tonight, it would be this. Pray through your day. Pray through your day. God knows you're not smart enough. So he said in James 1.5, ask for wisdom. He knows you don't have enough energy. And so Romans chapter eight, verse nine, he says, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead will live in your body. So ask for that. Romans chapter eight, verse nine, ask for the power of God and ask for the work of the Holy Spirit to be able to do what you already know how to do. This is pretty incredible. And that's what Acts is all about. It's a bunch of people who actually believe Jesus. It's a bunch of people who said, I want to do this. And God said, I've, I've got I've got the person of the Holy Spirit here. I, I will be with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. And we will really turn the world upside down. So let's do this. Um, the book of Acts traces this early expansion of Christianity from its Jewish roots to a faith spread throughout the Roman Empire. So let me give you the who, what, where, when, and why. Who is Luke? Luke, the physician. He was a companion of Paul on the missionary journey. So Luke wrote the book of Acts. He wrote Luke and Acts together as one volume, basically. It's like part one and part two. So Luke wrote this as a physician. It's got high, higher writing of Greek. It's more organized and systematic because that's who Luke is. Luke was a physician and he was a companion of Paul. What is an account of the history of the early church? This is a historical document of what happened. This is an account of the early church. If you want to pray for Christ Church of Ornogo, as an, as an elder, this is what I'd ask you for. Pray that the story of Acts would be our story today. 
whatever that means. Pray that the story of God empowering his people would be our story. Not only our story, but the story of the church today. All the people who believe in God in this region and in this world and and all around the country, that it would be our story. We would not shrink back. We would not be scared. We would pray through our day and ask for God to do something impossible and amazing. Um, A a faculty member of mine, I'm going to get way off track here, but let me just tell you, I got to tell you this. Faculty friend of mine spoke at a meeting where he said, do you really believe that God will answer your prayers? to do his will in somebody's life. Not, not to manipulate people or to cajole them in some way, but to really do something in their lives. And so he said, I want you to pray for something and I want you to ask for God by the end of the day to get that done. And I was working with um, a person who happened to be traveling with me who was afraid of real close relationships. He was afraid of intimacy because he had been abused. And And so I prayed for him without him knowing that by the end of the day, he would decide that being in fellowship, to have close friendships, would be better than being alone and isolated. That was at 6.09 in the morning. At roughly 8.30 that night, he he borrowed my car. He was on the side of the road in a mountain, bawling, because he decided that having a committed friendship was better than being alone a mere 12 hours or 12, 13, 14 hours later. I used that prayer on a student last week because he was grappling with something and I said, Lord, we've tried everything. <laughs> you know, we've talked and we've prayed and there's a stubbornness in his heart. By the end of the day today, would you show him what that is? I prayed for that at 9.30 and at 12.30 we were having that conversation. I don't understand I don't understand. That's Acts. Now, there are times that I pray, and he just says, well, you gotta wait a little bit more. But here's what I want you to know. I want you to have your own stories. I want you to have your own bold prayers where you say, God, this is a part of your will. I need you to do this. This person needs you to do this. I'm, I'm gonna bring this person in front of you. Your greatest power is the power to take somebody to the throne of grace and ask God to change them from the inside out. If you're not wailing the Holy Spirit on your kids, you need to. If you're not wailing the Holy Spirit on your spouse, you need to. If you're not wailing the Holy Spirit on your heathen bosses and and people you work with, you need to. Instead of complain about them, every time you want to complain about them, you ask God to make them so disgruntled about their lives that they will look at the claims of Christ and maybe see the life in you and ask you some questions about that. You just go and pray the socks off of everybody. That's what Acts did. And so when you're looking at this and you're seeing this amazing story about the early church, this is the history of a group of people who didn't know what they were doing and asked God to pray and do something amazing for them. So we've done the who and the what. The where is in Rome. This was written in Rome. When? About 63 AD. 63 AD. Again, I heard Mark say last week that this is to get down the account so people wouldn't forget. The eyewitness accounts are here. There are people that could be interviewed. There could be clarifications that were a part of all of this story. And Luke wrote these down before we would forget. So that we would have it as a a history, a statement of faith to say when God shows up, um, a whole culture can change. Why? Um, To record the spread of the gospel through the Roman world. Why is to record the spread of the gospel through the Roman world? 
Key number one, the ever-present Holy Spirit. The ever-present Holy Spirit. This is the power source of what we do. The ever-present Holy Spirit. Everything about transformation is Holy Spirit work in your life. So if you don't ask any other prayer other than, God, please help me, and I mean transform me, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. If it feels weird to you to say, Holy Spirit, please give me wisdom and help me, don't say it that way, but say, God, please help me. Because the Holy Spirit, the the third person of the Godhead, which is very hard for, I don't even understand all that, is there living with us, and he goes, got it. Get ready. Tomorrow's gonna be a cool day. You might get whammed up, and so you're gonna pray through the entire day because you're crabby, and you just prayed that I would help you, I will help you by showing you that you need me when you're crabby. Or you might have a phenomenal day where everything goes really well and he says, see, I want you to know that I can smooth some things out. Whatever lesson you need to learn, he will teach you <laughs> because he's a great teacher and he will find no fault in your attitude. You pray that, you, that he will change you and you have a really rough day. He's showing you something about what he can do for you because it's time for you to see him carry you or help you or give you wisdom. It's time. So instead of being grumpy about it, say, Lord, what do you want me to know about this? How do you want me to see this? The persecution of the church, they fell to their knees. They said, Lord, what should we do? Show us what we should do. The pressure that is placed upon you, instead of complaining, God, my life should be easier, he looks at you and he says, no, no, I want you to see what amazing things I can do while you're under pressure. Under pressure, just pray and and act the right way and I will show you something incredible beyond your own wildest dreams so that you can have something amazing. The ever-present Holy Spirit is key number one. Um, The blank after the New Testament is comforter. The New Testament reveals the Spirit to be a person, one with the Father and the Son. He is also given a personal name in the New Testament, comforter, comforter. In John um, chapter 15, verse 26, and when the comforter comes, this is a descriptive name, and I think God gives it to us because he knows that you and I live in a world where we don't have a lot of comfort internally. I mean, as Americans, we have a lot of physical comfort, but anxiety and depression are very high within our nation. In fact, at epidemic proportions right now, they're very, very high. We don't have a lot of internal comfort. And so what I want for you to look at too is that the Holy Spirit is here to help you to deal with those anxieties and those fears and those um, crazy situations that you find yourself in. And his very name helps you to look at that. Um, Three New Testament lines of teaching about the Spirit are important to us. Number one, the Spirit is seen in the Gospels as the one who oversees the birth of Christ and who is the source of Jesus' strength and power. The Spirit is the source of Jesus' strength and power. The source of Jesus' strength and power. Therefore, He is your source of strength and power. You want to be a better mom? He's your source. You want to be a better dad? He's your source. You want to be a better uh, a person who is single and want to have a better experience with people? He is your source to be able to do that. If you're a grandparent, he is your source. If you're a business owner, he is your source. He is the source of your power and your ability to be the kind of person. Number two, the Spirit is promised um, as a source um, of our power. Jesus is promised as the source of our power. The epistles go into great detail about the role of the Spirit in the life of the individual believer and the Christian community. In the life of the individual believer and the Christian community. Lots of detail about that. 
So number one, the source of Jesus' strength and power. Number two, the source of our power. And number three, um, the spirit in the life of the individual believer and the Christian community. Again, devotionally, when you read through some of these passages this week, which I hope that you will do, put your finger on the passage and say, Lord, this is the experience that I would like to have in some way that's meaningful. I'd love to have this kind of wisdom this week. I need it. I need to have this kind of conviction to stand up to do the right thing because I need that. I need this kind of love, this, this amazing love. Help me to have that amazing love. And the Holy Spirit is there to help you to accomplish those things. Um, number two, it is the guarantee of Christ's return. Key number two, the guarantee of Christ's return. The guarantee of Christ's return. At the bottom of the page, it says, after he said this, Jesus was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you... Um, have seen him go into heaven and the Holy Spirit in Ephesians chapter 1 is called our guarantor. he's the one who we are given as the kind of down payment of our inheritance he's the one who is with us until Jesus comes back um, and that's in Ephesians chapter 1 um, so what is Jesus doing right now what is Jesus doing right now the New Testament tells us number one Jesus is preparing a place for us John chapter 14, verse 2. Jesus is preparing a place for us. We don't know what that place is going to look like, but it's going to be cool. It's going to be very cool. We're not to be so heavenly minded, we're no earthly good, but we are to remember that we are a people of an inheritance, and we are a people who are going places, and we are a people that things will be made right in the end, and we want as many people to experience that as possible, because it's going to be amazing. So... Jesus is preparing a place for us. Number two, Jesus is interceding or praying for us. In Romans chapter 8, 34 and Hebrews 7, 25, Jesus is interceding or praying for us. He is our high priest. And if you're unfamiliar with the role of the high priest in the Old Testament, let me just give you this two or three sentence snapshot. The high priest was allowed once a year as the whole representative of the nation of Israel to walk into the very presence of God on the earth, which was in the Holy of Holies. In fact, this was such a sacred moment that they would tie a great big rope around his leg in case he had a heart attack or died or something so they could drag his body out because nobody else was allowed in there. I mean, this was an amazing moment of just sacredness. And the whole room was gold in the temple from top to bottom with um, the Ark of the Covenant and the cherubim that was there. And the, holy, and, and the um, high priest would sprinkle off of a branch, they would call it a hyssop branch, blood from um, the goat that was sacrificed, um, and the, or the bull, bull that was sacrificed, and the nation of Israel would have their sins covered in blood for one more year. It's called atonement. Covered. A word, atonement means covered. It doesn't mean forgiven in the way that you and I think about it. It means pushed back. Because only Jesus can forgive sins. Rome, or Hebrews chapter 10 says, the bulls and goats can't, they don't, their, their blood can't solve it. So atonement means covered, is that they were covered for another year with blood. Somebody had to die. Something had to die. And the high priest was there doing that, um, taking care of the spiritual work. And so what Jesus is doing is he's your high priest taking care of your spiritual work. Your spiritual work. Are you depressed? He's taking care of your spiritual work. Are you anxious? He's taking care of your spiritual work. Did you, did you sin in a big way? He is taking care of your spiritual work. Are you, are you unsure? He is taking care of your spiritual work. 
He is taking right now your needs before the Father. And he says, even if you don't know what they are, I still want to help you. So talk to me, pray about these things, and I will still help you. But he is supporting us behind the scenes, which is really cool. Number three, Jesus is our advocate when we sin. First John chapter two, verse 11. He's our advocate. Now, in a perfect world, you become a Christian and you won't sin anymore. We don't happen to live in that world. <laughs> so one of the reasons that I wanted to take you where I did tonight is this. I don't want you to be afraid of your own sin. I mean, I don't, I don't know what all of your stories are, but I know that we can be afraid of our own sin. We can think it's too bad. We can think it's gone on too long. We can think it's too horrible. And we believe that we should be punished or God should not love us. We take matters into our own hands. And what God is saying is this, I am not afraid of your sin. Jesus died for that sin. And he will take you in some really cool and amazing way right up to God. And he'll put his arm around you in the throne room and he will say, Peter said that he is sorry and I believe him. I believe him. And God will say, forgiven. That's what's so amazing about this. He intercedes for you. He takes you there. And he lets you be forgiven. It's just incredible. Now, let me give you what you need to do if you've not ever for, had forgiveness this way. Hosea um, chapter 14. You can read it later. Hosea chapter 14. There is a process that I try to teach people who have not gone through um, repentance and forgiveness like this. So let me just give it to you because this is amazing because you should have a physical response when you are forgiven of great sin. So if you have not yet gone through this, here's what I want to suggest that you do. And maybe next week I can talk to you a little bit more about this because we're going to run out of time. Go somewhere where nobody else is. And you're going you're to think this is entirely weird and bizarre because it is. But it's amazing because it's biblical. This is the only passage that tells you how to actually ask for repentance in an orderly fashion. So here it is. Uh, what I want to suggest is that you go somewhere where nobody else is going to be around. I like to go outside because I like to be outside or be in the house all by yourself. Write nothing down. Sit down and say to God, God, I have come to repent. I've come to list out my sins because I am tired of them and I want to, to change my life and go from darkness to light in a deeper way. And so I'm going to list them out and I'm going to, to verbally turn from them in front of you. So show me what they are. This is very mystical, but it's really pretty amazing. Remember, the Holy Spirit lives in you. Jesus lives to make intercession for you. You want to put to death the sins of your life. And this is the fastest and best way that I've ever found to do that. And so sit there and ask for God to reveal to you what you need to repent from. This is not to feel bad. This is to get rid of it. And so when something comes to your mind, you will say, yes, I did that. And I, I repent. I turn from that. I, I want to live the way that you want me to live. And whether I do that perfectly or not in the future, I am turning in my own mind. I am, I'm saying, yes, I did that, and I am sorry I did that. And what will happen is, is that you will have incident after incident that will come to you in that time period. And sometimes they'll go really fast, and when I've done this, I just nod my head. Mm-hmm, 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 oh. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I don't want, no, I, no, slow down. I don't want, yeah. And I get through that first layer and then it stops. Don't go anywhere. There's this kind of lull that happens. And then there's another layer. 
And then there's a lull that happens. And there's another layer. And then there's a lull that happens. <laughs> and there's another layer. The first time I did this, it took an hour and 15 minutes and I remembered stuff from two years earlier. Plan an hour. Take your time. You might not be in so bad a shape as I was that you would need an hour. But I needed an hour the first time I did this. Repent of every specific sin. Not a cluster. Specifically, I said this word and it hurts. What will happen is you will feel light at the end of this experience. You will actually feel lighter, like you could maybe float a little bit. Because sin affects you psychologically and it weighs you down and burdens you. That's why there's so much in the, in the word about giving up your burdens. And the Holy Spirit is there to show you what those sins are so you can confess them so God can bring you, or Jesus can bring you before the Father and say, I believe him. And God goes, you're forgiven. In you, in heaven, on the throne. Three in one, forgiving you simultaneously. Isn't that amazing? The Bible talks about that. And so what I want to encourage you to do is if you've not experienced this, you need to. And there's a, there's a lightness and an, an enthusiasm that God can just get away with all of the shame and the guilt that actually happens. And you might need to go talk to people afterwards or something. But the idea here that you're looking at is Jesus is an advocate for you. And when you ask him specifically to forgive you because you really mean it, he will do that. Number four, Jesus is guiding and directing us. Jesus is guiding and directing us. Ephesians chapter one, verse 22. Guiding and directing us. I don't know about you, but I have never been an elder of a church this size before. Is there anything that you're experiencing in your life that you have never experienced before? Whether it is related to aging it is related to physical health. It is related to business, relationships, culture. Is there something that you are experiencing that you have not ever experienced? This is kind of new for you. Well, I'm standing in front of you and none of the elders in this church have ever been a, an elders of a church this size before. We don't always know what we're doing. But we know the God who knows what he's doing. We know the God who knows what he's doing. That's why I think we all get along so well. It's not because we're so smart. It's that we ask him to show us what to do. And it makes sense. Is there something that you need him to show you? Because you want to live on the edge of your faith. You are never too old to have him show you something. You're never too old. You never outgrow your need for an adventure with Jesus. You never outgrow your need to, sh to have him show you something. So what is it? Because he will guide you and he will direct you. If you ask him, Lord, I've, I don't know what to do. Help me to figure this out. And he will. Key number three, we've been empowered to do the work of messengers. Oh, where are we at here? We've been empowered to do the work of messengers. We have a, a message and a job to do. Let me finish these up for you and we will close out. The, the church grows from the very beginning. Let me give you, number one, the Holy Spirit filled and empowered Jesus' followers. Filled and empowered Jesus' followers. More of the same. It's really pretty cool. Jesus, the Holy Spirit, filled and empowered Jesus' followers. Number two, 
History's first two gospel sermons from Acts chapter two. First two gospel sermons. You can see on the left, Jesus was a historic person, crucified and raised from the dead. Remember, first importance, there were prophets um, that told us about this. He is God's Messiah, and everyone who believes in him will be forgiven of their sins, and the Holy Spirit will live in them. That is a gospel message right there, which is really cool. So, number one is the Holy Spirit filled and empowered Jesus' followers. Number two, history's first two gospel sermons. If you want to know what the gospel is, and, and if people say what... Tell tell me the good news of Jesus. Go right to Acts chapter two and Acts chapter three and you'll find it there. Number three, the overwhelming response to the gospel message. The overwhelming response to the gospel message. Here's what I want you to know about that. When you speak with your life and you speak with your words and you pray that God will make people's hearts soft, when they finally accept it, there's something really incredibly amazing that happens. And when this was going on at the very first time on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 men, which we think maybe there were 5,000 people, became Christians in one day. There's a tipping point when you hear it and you embrace it and you accept it. So you're sowing and planting and living the message and being the message. And as a result, do not be surprised when somebody becomes a Christian, they're all in all of a sudden. And it's like, oh yes, this is exactly what I want to do. The last two for you. Number four. Let me find it here. The early church was a close and loving fellowship of believers. The early church was a close and loving fellowship of believers close and loving fellowship this is one of our goals at CCO close and loving I know we're big close and loving I know that we have strangers loving I want you because I mean you guys are kind of like the huddle group here I want you to pray about this one is that we really need to continue to be the kind of place that people can find their home here their spiritual home, their relational home, new friends, new relationships where they can get empowered and see the way that the gospel works and just let God send whoever he's going to send and so that we can go out into the community and we can take that message out into the community and we can say, here's the filling station. Here's a place you can go. I mean, you can go other places too, but here's a place you can go and you can hear how to be filled up with the Lord. The early church was this place. That's really exciting for us. And the last one that you're looking at, the ideal Jerusalem church faced external and internal challenges. The ideal Jerusalem church faced internal and external challenges. Internal and external challenges. Here's here's how I want to close out tonight. It's about 10 till. Internal and external challenges. If I could speak to you as an elder tonight, and we're all in on this, from, from the vantage point of discipleship, here are some things that I think are important for us. Number one is really take a look at what God is leading you to do personally. And remember that he's gonna stretch you and grow you beyond what you think you are capable of doing. That's what he's gonna do. That's the new life. Because he knows that with his power, with who he is in in the person of the Holy Spirit, that can be your reality. So he's going to stretch you beyond what you think that you can endure or become. And that's very exciting and cool. The second thing is, in the struggle to get there, 
no matter how easy or difficult it is, remember that Christ himself is your advocate. Christ himself, the same Jesus who died on the cross is in heaven and he's putting his arm around you and he's saying, this is what we are telling Peter to do. We have to help him. And so when you pray and you ask for God to change you, whether it's something that happens in a week or something that happens in eight months, remember that you have an advocate. And the third thing is this. Remember that your changed life or the the struggle that you're going through is the testimony that the resurrection is true. Your struggle is the testimony that the Holy Spirit is in you changing you. Or you would have quit a long time ago. It's the testimony. And so when you get there and you can say, this is where God has led me, there's something really sweet and amazing about that. Remember that you're a people who are going somewhere and that the resurrection stands at the centerpiece and the Holy Spirit empowers you to get things done. And don't quit. Don't stop. But understand and live this amazing journey and ask for the Lord to teach you and grow you so that you can get that new life empowered by the Holy Spirit that will give you what God really intends for you to have in your own experience. Let's close with prayer. Lord, thank you so much for my brothers and sisters. Thank you for the time that Mark could be gone so I could be here. This is kind of fun. But bless Mark and help him. Guide him and direct him with Matt and give them um, great wisdom that they would come back and tell us what's going on with the gospel in Osaka, a place that's growing with the gospel that other people have said is too hard. We thank you that Acts is a, is a story, is a true story that is going to be replicated in our world today. Lord, I want to pray as a leader of the church for these, my brothers and sisters, that the story of Acts and the empowering of the Holy Spirit, the amazing strength of your word and the testimony of the resurrection would live in these men and women and you would take them places and grow them in ways that they can only imagine and that they will see that you are good and powerful and strong and holy and righteous and that they would give testimony to how amazing you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.